This is your coffee break. Hey friends, Sarah from the Right Now Podcast here. I am back again this week with a new guest for you. I have with me today Erin Pringle, who's the author of The Floating Order, and she also just came out with a brand new book of stories called The Whole World at Once, and it deals with loss and grief and all sorts of strange, beautiful, poignant things. Erin, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So I would love to know, just first and foremost, uh, to introduce you to our audience today, if you could just give us a little bit of a snapshot of your writer's journey. So I won my first award in first grade. <laughs> when <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, when I won an award for a story about a Christmas mouse that lived in a teacup, <laughs> and then... Um, and my sister was a writer, and she was about 16 years older than me. And so um, I think I was always aware of that as a possibility because mm -hmm. of her. And I started um, collecting rejection slips when I was about 15, I think, because she had given me uh, her old copy of Writer's Digest or Writer's Guide yeah. whatever that giant book is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and <so> I, <laughs> yeah, and so I would just I just send out my stories or my poetry, and then I would collect um, the rejections. And then I went to um, Indiana State University for um, my undergrad, and so I got a, my bachelor's in English literature and my minor in creative writing, and then I went to um, grad school in Texas State University and San Marcos, and I got did my MFA in creative writing there. Um, and then my my thesis was the Floating Order, and which was this, ended up being my first collection of stories. And now I live Northwest, and I'm out with my second book. And um, I think that that's a rather larger snapshot, maybe. No, but that's perfect. That, <laughs> that, that's basically it. Wonderful. I love it. I, I'm always interested to see how people get into writing because it's not always the most obvious path. I love that you had a sister who you could kind of look to maybe uh, as a role model, you know, whether or not she was a good role model. I, I have no idea. But yeah. like you, you had her to look to. First of all, you write short fiction. Is that something that you've always, is that kind of what those rejection slips at 15 years old were for? Were they for short stories or is this a relatively new thing? Or tell me more about that. Um, short stories. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I picked the, the, the most unobvious. <laughs> um, yeah, so I can't remember what the rejection letters were for. I, well, no, short fiction. Um, yeah, because, yeah, short stories. But I remember I was going to be... Well, I thought I was going to write novels, mm -hmm. so I had um, drafted a couple of those before um, I was in grad school, and so I thought, you know, in workshop I would write short stories in, in undergrad, and then, but the, but short stories is really what you what you study. I ended up falling in love with the short story, not thinking that I was going to write short stories when I realized that it was the, the perfect genre for um, both my love of language and 
storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I, so it's like the long poem to me that mm-hmm. works. And so I, I really became enamored with the short story because it's short enough that you can have a basic story, but the language can really work very hard and has to, you mm-hmm. know, because, um, because there's such a finite amount of time. And so I really, I really love the short story because of that. So, um, once I started realizing that I could both kind of still work with beautiful language and not have to give that up, which I don't know why I was thinking I would have to, but <laughs> language in a novel, you know, mm-hmm. the story has to propel. And so the language has to be a little um, less aware of itself, I mm-hmm. would say, in the novel. So so that, so I guess in, in graduate school is when I really realized, oh, I, this is good. You know, I like this. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, I have so many questions from a writer's perspective here. I guess first and foremost, uh, you have several novels drafted. Are they just hanging out? Yeah, they are. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I just wrote another one, though, um, in October. Um, Well, I had been working on it, but I finished a first draft of it. And so um, and so that's in my revision cycle. So I'm also working on another short story collection. And so I picked the collection up and I'm finishing a first full draft of that. And once I have that done, then I'll move back to the novel. Um, And so it's about probably two more months before I return to the novel. That's awesome. Do you write full time then? Um, Yeah, well, yes, I do. I write um, in the mornings, my son's at preschool. And so I pick him up in the afternoon. So I write every morning through the week that is awesome yeah it 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 is it was not always like this I was juggling teaching and um and writing and so I would write only in the summers and so that it's a much different um writing is much different in this way tell me a little bit more about um, your process and your, your sort of daily writing habit I know when we first connected you mentioned that you write from coffee shops I do. And that's more, I think that's probably more because I grew up going to coffee because (laughs) my parents, my parents had me in when they were in their forties and in a small town, one of the the things that people do, or at least, uh, you know, is to go to coffee at the local diner. Um, and so my, my parents would go at 8am and then again around 4pm. And so I would go with them every day for my entire childhood. And so it's a, so being in a coffee shop or a diner is a very um, comforting place Mm -hmm. to be in and it feels very stable and, and I'm not alone. So I'm kind of aware of the world, but not there quite, you know, because I'm writing. Um, So, so that's why I write in coffee shops and, and I don't get distracted in a coffee shop like I would at home with, you know, I should be. Mm. cleaning the house you know even though I don't clean I hate it but (laughs) suddenly if I'm at home I think oh I really need to I need to vacuum this rug for the fifth time (laughs) you know but if I'm in the coffee shop I'm able to resist I don't even have those thoughts I just work on my my writing so um your question was my process oh so my process now is um I draft out a story or when I was working on the novel, I was writing about a chapter a week. Um, 
so it's almost like a short story a week. Is oh, kind of what, yeah, yeah. You know, I was thinking of the chapters because I'm still approaching the novel like it's a short story, like uh-huh. a very long, a long short story. And I think that's why my stories kept growing in length. In the floating order, they're very short, um, almost close to flash length. Mm. Um, and in the, the whole world at once, they're very long, so 30 to 40 pages long. And so that kind of led me back into the novel in a um, less overwhelming way with my mm-hmm. new style. Um, so, yeah, so I'll draft out a story and then um, leave it and, and draft out a new one. And so my cycle is the revision process comes after I've already finished a different story. So when I was a little girl, when I took piano lessons, Mrs. England would say, you know, we would work on one piece for a while and then she would let it sit. Mm. You have to let this sit, you know, for six months. And then I'd work on other songs and then we would go back to, you know, Katalevsky's Toccata or something. And so I think I follow that, uh, that similar process of, okay, Mrs. England would say this has to let sit. You know, my brain has to work on it when I'm not act- actively working on it. That's so interesting. Process. Like, what do you think our brains are doing? And I know that I think of it as digesting. I know other people think of it as marinating. I mean, what happens during that process? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I call it percolating. Ah, with the coffee <laughs> yeah, reference. Have, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. The, the collection that I'm working on, um, so I've started going back to those stories, and and they're all set in winter, which mm-hmm. was a really good idea at the time because it was winter when I was writing them. And now I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be inside this winter. <laughs> Constant, like, I can't escape this winter. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know? um, but I go back and, I th- and I'll see, like, oh, I think I understand what I was trying to communicate here. But this is not at all what I meant to communicate. So similarly thinking, you know, when we wake up in the morning – and we've had this nightmare or a dream later in the day, we'll think, Oh, maybe that's why these images were put together because of this or that. And it makes a little more sense or we're able to, to shape a narrative around why the dream happened. Mm. I think the same thing might be happening with the, with the stories, right. Or, or the writing is you're able to kind of figure out what to do with, whatever you were originally working on. I'm not sure. I think that's an excellent answer. You have a new book coming out, and these short stories have a theme to them. They deal with loss and grief. And I'm very curious to ask if that is consistent through all your works, and then if you could also tell us a little bit about why it affected uh, your latest book. Sure, sure. Um, So... I think that it is pretty consistent throughout my work because death keeps happening to me. Mm. Um, and so, and so, and so the novel is also dealing with it. And, but the new short story collection is not. So thankfully um, there's, it's still the new one I'm working on is strange, but dealing more with the surrealism of love and that, um, cause that's happening right now. Um, but when the first collection came out, um, that was about uh, 10 years after my father had died. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, the stories in the floating order are not all dealing with grief um, or or all dealing with death. It's more like 
children who find themselves in strange situations and like trying to exert control in the world that's constantly taken away from them by adults. And so it's, it's, it's more in that kind of um, children's literature for adults um, genre. Oh, and in yeah. this collection, children are still major characters um, for the first half of the collection. But my, when my book came, my first book came out in 2009 um, toward the end of, of that process, my best friend was diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, which is um, a disease that's incurable. And so I started writing, trying to write a book to save her life because I knew I didn't have enough time to become a doctor or a medical scientist who can come up with the cure, which is really frustrating. I mean, when I tell the story, it sounds kind of ridiculous. Like if I was the friend of my former self, I would say, of course you can't. But at the time, I didn't know what else to do. Right. So I started writing a project and I was thinking, I'll save Alexa's life. And I even told her, I'm working on a plan to save your life. And she said, okay. Um, she, you know, I mean, she knew who I was and thought I was probably joking. And, and I didn't tell her like how seriously I, I didn't think it could be done. But I thought, I don't know, maybe through reading it, mm-hmm. she would, I don't know. Um so that was very um, fantasy oriented and lots of folk stories. I was kind of creating folk stories and trying to create a world with that these folk stories lived in, like mm-hmm. a culture. I don't know. Um, but every time the problem with fairy tales, as I discovered, um, not the Disney ones, but of the folk variety, mm-hmm. is that there's always there's always someone to blame for the problems that the story revolves around. And if you're trying to save someone's life, and at this point I wasn't religious, there was no one to blame for it. And so there was no one to fix the problem of the death. So every time I would get right to the point where I was about to save her, whether she was a little girl, like crawling out into the field to visit this scarecrow every day, and eventually he was supposed to save her somehow, Right when I would get to that point, I would think, but it can't, this can't, this doesn't work. You know, like the writing, the story would fall apart because the narrative didn't, I didn't believe the narrative, <laughs> I guess. Okay, um, yeah, I, yeah. Sure, I could have fixed it. I could have, like, concluded it somehow, but it, it, the story just kept falling apart or I'd have these long dialogues between, like, the, the, the grave digger and death. And they would just sit on the, you know, sit in a cemetery and talk back and forth. Um, but you know, but then what? Like they'd have this long conversation, but there would be no conclusion to it. And so, um, so then Alexa died, and I stopped the project. And so then um, I started working on an elegy to the Midwest because I grew up in rural Illinois, and so my father died there. And then I ended up, you know, going back for Alexa's funeral. And then, so I thought, okay, I'm just going to get rid of this grief. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just going to write an elegy to the Midwest. And it'll be, you know, I was reading Whitman at the time, and he seemed to be able to do something with language that was very cathartic, mm-hmm. whether, you know, in his elegy to Lincoln or um, in Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. Like, there's something he does with language that not many, I don't think I've read many writers who can do that. So, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I'll do something like that. You know, but it'll be this elegy to Alexa, but it'll be an elegy to the Midwest and my father. And I'm going to try to resurrect the Midwest and then set it down by the end of the story. Like, I'm going to be done with it. 
and it'll be done. Mm-hmm. Done with it. I'm done with the cornfields. I'm done with all of it. Yeah, so I was writing this elegy, and um, and the same thing was happening. I mean, kind of like Carol Maso's novel, Ava, um, where, you know, it's the language is beautiful, but it can only drive it for so long without a, a narrative that's kind of unfolding at the same time. The language just is beautiful, but it doesn't, I couldn't make it go anywhere. So then my sister died. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So, um, so that, so I just stopped working on the, the elegy of Midwestern Memoriam, but a number of the images from there and sort of where it was placing my mind in the Midwest and kind of resurrecting memories of the landscape there. And a lot of those are in the stories that are in the whole world at once. So stories that I had been working on that really hadn't worked, started working. And so there was a story that um, was set in a county fair very much like, well, exactly. I mean, it's set in Martinsville, Illinois. I don't say that, but that's where the um, the Clark County Fest fair would happen every year. And as a little kid, my brother would take me there. And so the fairs have always been a kind of strange existence I think mm-hmm. um and so I was I was trying to write this story but I didn't really know where it was going and then suddenly um after it was about seven, maybe six months after um, my sister had died I was working on the story and and I started to create a narrative around it and that became um how the fields burn or how the sun burns among hills of rock and pebble which is the first story and of the book and was going to be the title story, but I was, it published as a chat book. So before this book came out, so I needed to change the the title for the book. And, um, and even though I I think you'll like this part, the the sister's name is Helen green. And that was a character from the novel I wrote when I was 18. So some of that is kind of also in this story because I had already had Mm -hmm. the character, but now she's, not in you know she's much different in this book she's the the sister who's been in the book murdered um I mean in the story murdered but um but that became kind of like the foundational story I would say to the book and so then then I started writing well I guess I already had this bomb my heart I had written that before I had written how the sun burns but when I went back to that then it had kind of taken on it had, it needed new layers. Mm. Um, I, like I was in high school, I thought I was going to be a watercolorist. I really liked portraiture and watercolor was my favorite, um, medium. And so in watercolor, one of the things that I love about it is that it accumulates over the, over weeks because you can only do one layer at a time and then you have to let it dry. And then you go back and you put another layer and it dries and you can see the layers through it. And in some way, that's my writing process. And what I try to do in the in in every story is that there's all these layers happening, and so and so grief is is part of the layer within that. But there's also the kind of the beautiful moments in the world that are, is also also a layer within the story. Um, and so that is that an, that's a very long answer to your question about the process of and grief of the whole world at once. Um, oh, that's perfect. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. And and grief, I guess what I learned is after my father's death, I was 17 and I thought, I don't know if it has an age thing, but I was 17 when it happened. And I think I expected that I'd become an expert on grieving, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, so I've got this down. Mm-hmm. If this should ever happen again, this is how it's going to work. But then with Alexa, the process, the grief was much different than it had been with my father. And, and then when Jennifer died, um, her, my, it wasn't a disease. She'd completed suicide. And that was a completely different experience. You know, with that, I felt like burning the world down, but I had never, I had not had that feeling with Alexa. With Alexa, it was more like, I just can't get to her, you know, Mm -hmm. like, how am I going to save her? But with Jennifer, it was too late. Like there was no chance to save her. It just happened. So when I was writing the story, so I learned that grief is completely different for each person that you lose, probably because you love them differently. Mm-hmm. The way your identity is attached to that person is different. Your memories are different. And so as I was writing the stories, I would try to describe, you know, the reality of grief for, you know, in the story. And then I think, well, that's it. But there's also this. Mm-hmm. And so it just kept every time I would write a different story, like, Oh, here's this part of it. And here's this part of it. So, um, and so that's that's what created the the sort of somatic tie of all of these characters in some way dealing with loss. What a beautiful way to describe it. I love the analogy with watercolor. I think that's just there's just something so just beautiful and and lovely in there. So thank thank you for sharing that with us. That's such a private personal thing and I I think there's something very I don't know, very uh, self-sacrificing and being willing to share that experience because I think that it is very healing for other people and, and there's just something very wonderful in that. When you write, what is your favorite part about writing? What brings you the most joy? I like the silence of it. Um, I like creating the images and the sound of the language in my head. Um, I think those are my favorite. It's like... It's like that moment in in the olden days when there were lots of dark rooms and you would push the the photography paper down into the chemical bath mm. and the image would appear. And you would know what the, the image was because you took it. And yet there's this like this beautiful experience of watching it appear. You know, it's not dissolving. It's the opposite of dissolving. Um, and mm-hmm. I really enjoy the experience of both dissolving images and watching them undissolve and trying to figure out my, my, my father was an amateur photographer. So I grew up following him around country roads at twilight, whenever mm-hmm. there was good lighting and trying to capture the beauty of what was, a, you know, the world was falling apart. You know, our town was falling apart. His life wasn't good, but we were looking for these beautiful moments. And I think in writing, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I wasn't able to do photography, like whatever it takes, whatever sort of quirks your brain to really enjoy that. I didn't get that like my father had, but I can do it in writing. Hmm. And so it, it's like I'm going on journeys looking for these beautiful moments to try to put together. Um, and I, that experience is what brings me back to writing again and again because there 
they're real but not real photographs, you know, how to create a beautiful photograph but in language and how to put that in the reader's brain. It's almost like their brain is the the, the chemical bath mm -hmm. and how to how to put the image in there and and that it's no one can see it happening, I think is so beautiful too. Mm -hmm. um, but the experience of lang of hearing the language and creating the images and the silence of it is very peaceful and calming to me. What a beautiful yeah. way to describe that. I'm, I'm sitting here just like nodding because that you, you've, you've hit upon something. I love your use of the word undissolving. Um, that's just so evocative. That's, oh my gosh, that's truly lovely. Oh my gosh, Aaron, I feel terrible because um, I feel like Skype was just a jerk today and now I have to run away <laughs> yeah. from what I feel is a very beautiful and rich conversation. I would love to host you again at some point um, and maybe uh, continue on this conversation or maybe talk about something else if that would if that would work for you because I've enjoyed talking <laughs> with you so far and you have so many yeah. awesome things to say. Gosh. Absolutely. I would love I would love to talk to you again. I like you too, but I don't oh, have good. a radio show to tell people. <laughs> like, I really like Sarah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank good. you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for putting these beautiful things out into the world. Thank you for helping people heal. You are you are doing good things. Oh, I don't know. I miss creating undissolving images <laughs> in my little coffee shop. Oh, there's that is just yeah. I want to.